Uh, we're going to jump right into it today. Uh, we're going to get right after it. So go ahead, if you have your Bibles, if you have your scripture journals, we're going to open up uh, to Hebrews chapter 2. And, uh, and we're, we've got a lot of ground to cover, but we're only really going to be touching on a few verses. And so go ahead and go there. It will also be, uh, once we get to it, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, but we're going to be in Hebrews uh, chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 5 uh, in just a few moments. So while you're getting there, while you're turning there, uh, I do want to ask you, and it's just it's food for thought, just something to think about. Why is it that we, and, and by we, I mean like not just the people in this, in this room, but, but human beings, all, all people, are obsessed with stories about lost kingdoms, overrun with enemies, reclaimed by uh, the worthy heirs of their felled forefathers. Like, why are we like that? Why do we love this? Why do we watch all of these epic movies and films and, and, and different things that read these books? Because our text this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read verses 5 through 9, is going to answer, I believe, that question. And, and, and that's the question of why we, so, why we are so like entranced by these just epic tales, these amazing journeys, these, these, these just incredible stories. And we've been telling them around campfires and, and coffee tables and, and on movie screens and, and in books, in the pages of books for decades and for decades and for centuries, really. And, and we've been retelling, really, the same story with a different cast of characters over uh, every continent, uh, across centuries and across cultures and, and languages and oceans. It doesn't matter. Like, it's the same, really the same story. Let me, let me just give you an illustration of what I mean. The Odyssey uh, is an amazing work of literature. I don't know how many of you have read The Odyssey. Okay, like maybe half of the people. Cool. Uh, so The Odyssey is an amazing work of literature. It was probably written uh, by, by Homer. It was attributed to Homer, probably written about 700 B.C., which is about the time, if you want to like line it up with Scripture, it's about the time of the prophet Isaiah. And, and so uh, this story is mainly about the journey of a man named Odysseus who's trying to return uh, to his home in Ithaca after fighting in the Trojan War, uh, which is laid out in the epic tale that came before it called the Iliad. And so I have both right here. If you've never read them, you can borrow them. You can enjoy yourself. Um, so uh, in, in this illustration, uh, there are a bunch of spoilers. I just want to let you know right up front. But the way I see it is you've had 2,700 years to read this. And so if you haven't yet, um, then you're probably not going to, and that's okay. So uh, let me just give you the, the rundown. Let me give you the synopsis. So Odysseus is on his way home uh, from, like I said, the Trojan War. And it should take just about a few weeks but it ends up taking 10 years for him to get home. And he goes through all sorts of trials and issues and, and tests involving cyclopses and siren, si, sirens, I guess. The, you know, uh, Poseidon was involved and, and all these different things and other, you know, just various shenanigans as he's trying to make his way home. And, and finally, after a decade of struggle, Odysseus finally comes home and finds that his domain, right, his household, his kingdom are in disarray. Naturally, after 10 years, people thought that he was dead. And so many terrible men have essentially laid claim to his wife and his son and their home. And, he, and they're attempting to marry her so that they can take his throne and his home and rule over his domain. And that's what they're trying to do. And, and so they've been eating all his food. They've been mistreating his wife. And they've been just honestly just being like real dirtbags if you read this story. And, and so Odysseus returns. 
And rather than openly declare himself immediately, hey, I'm Odysseus and I'm home, everybody needs to back off, instead he disguises himself as a beggar. And, and, and these, these lowlifes, they, they abuse him and they insult him and they assault him. But he doesn't speak out or do anything. He just waits. And now Penelope, this is his wife, uh, she sets up this test. And she, and she says she's going to promise to marry the one who could string the bow of her husband, Odysseus, and then shoot an arrow through a dozen axes lined up with a hole drilled through the axe head. And, and we read that Odysseus used to be able to do this. This was, his, this was like his thing. This was his, his thing. And so long story short, all the suitors, they fail miserably. They're all terrible. They can't do it, obviously. Odysseus enters the competition, and he succeeds, and he's revealed to be the true husband of Penelope. And it's this incredible moment together with his son and a few of his faithful servants who never really gave up hope in his return. They, they, they slaughter all the suitors. All right, this is a real wild twist here. They slaughter all the suitors. They win back the kingdom, and they reclaim his throne. What a tale, right? Like, if you haven't read it, now you're thinking about it, right? Wow, that's pretty good. I kind of want to get into that. That sounds like a nice story. Here's why I told you all that. The Odyssey is a story about a lost kingdom under the claim of evil men, won back by a worthy lord, who saves his people, his, his wife and his child, his servants, saves his people and puts his enemies under his feet. He does this by succeeding where all others have failed, meeting the test that no one else can meet. That is what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 is all about. It's a passage that explains why this kind of story has captivated us and moved us so much across so many cultures and so many contexts, so many times and places throughout history. Remember, this story was told some 700 years before Christ. It's, it's a story that our very souls cry out for. And in these verses we're going to read in, in the psalm that it references captivate us because they are our story. And an epic journey that we are intimately and eternally connected to. And so let's go ahead and read the word. Starting in verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while, uh, low, you made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we just ask you in these moments, Holy Spirit, be in this place. Speak into our hearts and our souls. Do, do the things that I cannot do. We ask that you would just reveal yourself to us through your word and reveal who we are in you through your word. We give you these moments. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, we see that the story uh, continues on with a little bit of the, the same vein that we've already been in. Uh, it continues to make the case that the author...
began to make in the first chapter, which is that Jesus is better than the angels, right? And, we, and, I, and I told you, this whole series basically could be boiled down to three words. We could just name the entire series, Jesus is better. And that's kind of the same thought process that we're going to be on for most of this, of this book. Jesus is better. And so why is Jesus better than angels, according to verse 5? I know we covered this, uh, I think, two weeks ago uh, in our, in our, in our talk uh, while we were still outside, I believe. Um, but what is it talking about here that Jesus is better than the angels? And it's just a, like a simple answer, and this is just a little aside as we dive into what we're going to talk about today. Because the Father has subjected all things to his Son, not to the angels. And so there's just, he's just kind of continuing on with that same line of thinking, uh, but, but we're going to kind of get into a little something different as we do. That's a transitional piece, but we'll get into it. So here we go. Let's read verse 5 again. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. And I just want to pause right there for just a moment, because in context, that phrase, the world to come, isn't a reference to heaven or to paradise or to the new heaven and the new earth like it might seem. We might think that as we read it, but actually it's to the world on the other side of the Jewish age passing Away. And so really that's it's talking about once Judaism is no longer the, the religion of, 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 of God, what, that, that we've now moved on to Christianity, that's the, that's the world to come. And so after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the Father has given the Son the renewed and reborn nations, like really the whole world as his kingdom. It's now his, and, and, and it really was always his, but, but now it's, it's his because of all those things and, and to fulfill the prophecy. And he didn't give it to the angels, but he gave it to the Son. And so God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Now, I talked about an epic journey of redemption just a few moments ago and talking about uh, theodicy and the Iliad and and I hope you see and feel the evidence of how this text just, just really falls into the broader context, the broader journey, the broader story of the Bible. That's that incredible story that, that captivates us, the, the story of, of dominion lost and reclaimed. It, it's a story that, that we could tell in four distinct mo- uh, moments, movements, uh, each of which are brought out in the text. Uh, it begins with God's creation of mankind to rule in his image. And so the first moment is this. Uh, mankind was given dominion over all things. Now, there's two things that's being talked about here, and there's two stories, and we'll get into that in a minute, because you may think, well, well, Jesus, right? Well, it's okay. Let me, let me back up. I don't want to get too, too far ahead. So he starts off by telling us that the world to come has, has not yet been, has sub, not been subjected to the angels. Angels do not rule, all right? They, they will not rule over the earth. And, and now, uh, a few weeks ago, we established how amazing angels are, right? We talked about, like, I mean, I remember we talked about crazy stuff. We, we went through some of the descriptions of angels in Scripture, and we talked about how one of them almost looks like a dragonfly. It's got, like, three sets of wings, and it's doing some crazy wild things with its wings, and, and they're fiery wings, and it's, and it's wild. So, and angels are incredible and mysterious beings. They're extremely powerful. They were created intentionally by God for specific purposes, and, and they are God's messengers, and at times, even God's uh, warriors, if, if they need to be. And so... so if, if they are not ruling over the world to come, who is? And I think the easy Sunday school church answer is to say Jesus. But there's much more to it, to the story. And so in verses 6 through 8, the author quotes from Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, the original readers uh, or hearers would have been very familiar with Psalm 8. And to really appreciate what the author is saying by quoting this, we should get familiar, I think, with that psalm as well. So he's really getting into a kind of a quick theology lesson. He's referring back to Psalm 8, uh, which will then refer back to another passage. And, and when I read this particular psalm, I, I, just, I just get the impression that, that the psalmist, which is David, the psalmist is, uh, he, he's, he's looking up at the night sky and he's, he's looking at just the beautiful stars. They're shimmering and they're, you know, there's no light, there's no light pollution. So he can just see as far as his eyes can take him into the vastness of space. And he's, he's looking up and, and he's so overwhelmed in that moment that he just burst into psalm. Right? Has anyone ever burst into psalm? You should try it. I imagine it's very cathartic. So, so let me read this. Let me read this psalm because I think, I know we're backtracking and we're digging, we're digging a little hole and then I'm going to pull us back out of it. I'm going I'm to get us down there and then we're going to come back, I promise. So, so here we go. Uh, o Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put out all things under his feet." All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's two basic points and principles in, in, in Psalm 8. Number one is, is that when you consider the massive, cosmic, unimaginable glory of God, humans really shrink down to this like insignificant, minuscule dust particle by comparison. Who is man that you are mindful of him? I'm looking at these stars. Who is man? Who am I that you are mindful of me? But the second point of the psalm, and this, is, this defies logic. This is beyond reason. This is beyond comprehension. God has given mankind dominion over his creation. He has put things under our feet. And this wasn't like a new or fresh idea from David. Like, he's, he's not just thinking this up in the moment. He's, he, when he bursts in the psalm, he's not coming up with this new revelation. He's, he's pointing out something that we should know whenever we read our Bible in Genesis chapter 1, which I'll read just quick. It won't be on the screen, but I just want to read this. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on earth. God's original intent is for his people, uh, for his people is nothing short of amazing, especially with what we know about creation now. You see, David could only see a hint of the vastness of the glory of the universe. But through modern technology, we see that our planet is spinning around our sun, which is only one of 100 million suns in our galaxy, which is only one of 100,000 million galaxies that we know of. 
No wonder he shouted and we should shout, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. But that's the point. The author of Hebrews is doing this back and forth with, with, with the hearers, the readers of this word. He, he dances back and forth on these passages of comfort and these sections of discomfort, right? Like, as we've already seen through, through chapter 1 and, and now into chapter 2, he, he has these passages of encouragement and these passages of affliction. And he started this chapter challenging the believers of this likely very small house church in the Roman Empire to remain attached to the anchor that is Jesus and avoid drifting. We talked about that last week because, because that would be damaging to themselves and to, and to others. And, and so now in this passage, he wants to flip it and encourage the readers. He challenged them, and now he wants to encourage them. And they were facing some tough challenges, as we, as we outlined back in the first week, and it would be easy for them to think that in the midst of these challenges, in the midst of being ostracized by their, their former brothers and, and, and sisters in, in Judaism, in the midst of being persecuted and killed and, and, and their, their communities destroyed by Nero, in the midst of all of this, they, they are tiny insignificant specks in the vastness of the Roman Empire. They are lost and forgotten. They are lonely and alone is, is, is what they think. But the writer says here, no, sir, you are not alone. You are not forgotten. In fact, you are important. Think about man's position from the psalm and, and from what we just read in Hebrews. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Puny, <laughs> pathetic little man is only a little lower than the angels. And why are we lower than the angels? Because we have mortal bodies, and the angels don't. We have mortal bodies. We don't, we don't, we're not able to carry and harness the power that angels have, the ability that angels have. But man is not lower spiritually or in importance. Come on, somebody. This, this, this is what he's telling us. And can, can we just take a, a brief aside here? In light of everything our nation is dealing with, to say that this applies for all men and women on this earth is an understatement. There is no man or woman lower or of less importance for any reason, especially not skin color, not gender, not wealth, not nationality, not mental acuity, not political leanings. And you know what? Not even because of sexual preference or religious beliefs. God loves every person, and every person deserves to be loved by us. That passage in Genesis says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created, he repeats it. It's so powerful and important that he says it twice. Male and female, we are image bearers of the God most high. Come on, somebody. Our God has created us wonderfully and specifically, and his love for us is unreal. Even though we are only a speck in space and time, he cares for us. He elevates us, and he sends his son to die for us. And not just people that look like you, but people of all different shades and colors. They are just as much made in the image of God, and they are important to God. You are important to God. The listeners in this church, in the, in the book of Hebrews, are important to God. It says you have crowned him with glory and honor. 
Again, we're talking about man. I know, I know it's easy to, to Jesus is crowned with glory. and honor. He's, he's talking about man here. He's talking about people. Adam and Eve were the king and queen of original creation. God placed them in a beautiful paradise and he walked with them. Putting everything in subjection under his feet, God gave them authority over everything. Man was to rule over the world. If this original intent would have been carried out, we would still be a world full of kings and queens enjoying authority and all that comes with it. Do you know why people build cities and turtles don't? It's not a joke. I'm just, I know it sounds like a good, I don't have a punchline to that. It's just, why, why, why do we build cities? Why do we, why do, we do these things and, and animals don't? Turtle, you know, why people bore mines in the ground and dig up quartz and make silicon from it and, and, and turn that silicon into microchips that power iPhones and, and, and put satellites in space so we can send signals from the iPhone to space and then back again in order to more conveniently argue with people that we don't know over the Internet. Why do we do this? But squirrels, dolphins, koalas, none of them do it. It's because we were created with a fundamentally different place in God's creation. Higher than the animals, lower than the angels. Man was made to rule creation in God's name for his glory as his image bearers. But, number two, the second moment, the old humanity failed in his dominion. So rather than subduing the wilderness, making it a, a garden in God's name, we turned it into a howling desert wasteland through sin. Adam fell, and all of humanity, humanity fell with him, inheriting his sin nature, of course. And so from Adam forward, there are two stories unfolding at the same time, two epic tales, if you will. But each one is moving in, in diametrically opposite directions. One is the story that we're engaged in right now, remembering that Christ is reclaiming what was lost with his blood. The other is mankind, trying to reclaim dominion himself. Not as image bearers, right? Not as servants of, of the Lord, but as self-worshipping, autonomous, self-made gods. And what sin does, church, is, is not take away that creational urge that we have to rule and subdue, but it's twisted inward, right? And, and so we go and we find out that God made a glorious world full of hidden magic and secrets, a world where you can turn quartz into microchips, and, and we use those microchips not for God's glory but for our, and for our neighbor's good, but, but rather to, to make porn available instantaneously on screens in our phones and in our pockets. And so we go and we build these cities, which, which God intended, and, and they're fine, and there's nothing wrong with cities, but we fill them with prostitution and gang violence and unrestrained greed and systematic injustice. Two stories unfolding everywhere all the time. One is the story of Christ reclaiming dominion and making a new humanity in his image. The other is the story of man running from God into the darkness of death and depravity, into idolatry and self-rule. And, and I need you to see this, church. These two stories are not just unfolding in some kind of like ethereal, universal sense. Your life 
is always attempting to tell one of those two stories. Either your life will tell the story of death, burial, resurrection, and glorious reign by giving yourself away in service of God and your neighbor, or your life will tell the story of man grasping and groaning for power and pleasure apart from God. And what I need you to see today, church, is is that apart from grace, we cannot make the story come out right. Apart from grace, we can't bring things into their right order. Our gardens have weeds, and so do our lives and our homes and our work. So we need the grace of God. We need the glory of God. What does Hebrews 2 teach us? That where mankind in Adam fails, our God does not. That though Adam's curse left the world not under the dominion of God through his image bearers, but instead under the dominion of sin through the sin of his image bearers, our Lord still conquers. And so here it is, number three, the third moment. Where Adam fell, the second Adam stands. Where Adam fell, the second Adam now stands. See what humanity has been desperate for since Adam's fall into sin in Genesis 3 is a better Adam. Adam's name means man. And that's what he is, mankind. He's our head. Romans Romans teaches us this. He's our head. And when he fell, mankind fell. Our, Our nature fell. And so we are born into sin, desiring to sin and bondage to sin. Every son of Adam gets Adam's nature. And what we need is a new head, a a new man, a new, better, more perfect Adam. There's this fascinating passage in in, uh, Revelation chapter 5. It reads like this. It says, And then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written uh, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to, Uh, to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. This is in Revelation chapter 5. What is this scroll and why is John weeping at the fact that nobody is worthy to open it? The scroll, which you find out in the very next section of Revelation when it is open, is, is the restoration of the lost dominion of God through his image bearers. We find this out when the scroll is open in the the next section, and everyone breaks out singing. They say, uh, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation, and you have made them people, mankind, us, a kingdom and priest to our God. And so they, all of us, shall reign on the earth. The, The scroll is the covenant of salvation. That when opened, results in a people being redeemed from every tribe of mankind. And that people is declared a kingdom of priests and are given reign on earth. In other words, one, Jesus, is found to stand where Adam fell. And by standing, he reclaims, reclaims dominion for a new humanity. If you think back to the story of Odysseus, you see again that the story is buried so deep within our hearts. Remember, the Odyssey was written, like I said, 700 years before Jesus came, but when Odysseus returns to win his house back, it's so interesting how it happens. He disguises himself as a beggar. 
Let's just see parallels. He, he does what no other man can do. He strings the bow that nobody else can string, and he, and he makes the shot that nobody else can make. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the reverse echo of this story that is, that is buried within the human heart? How does Jesus reclaim his household for mankind in God's name? He comes as a beggar. Though he is God, he kneels down and he, and he takes on human flesh. And he opens the scroll that no one else can open. In our passage, God gave man dominion over earth. Man botched it in spectacular fashion. So God sent another to redeem. God intended for man to rule, but sin calls that intention to stall, not to disappear, only to stall, because through the blood of Jesus, we will realize God's intention of ruling still. And this brings us to the heart of the story, number four. Jesus freed creation by tasting death. Love the language. It says this, uh, verse 8, we're kind of like the second part. The first part of 8 is quoting from Psalm, but the second part we'll start with. Uh, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Adam and all of mankind had it all, nothing outside of our control. At present, we do not see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We had it, and we lost it. We were given control, but look around. There's no dominion right now, at least not as God intended. It's very clear. But, verse 9, I love this interjection. We don't see our potential realized yet, but we see Jesus. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This is the first mention of Jesus' name in the book of Hebrews. Up until now, he's been referred to as the Son Right? We, we've heard him talked about, but, but this is, he's now, there's now saying, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus didn't just do what Adam couldn't. He actually redeemed and restored Adam's race, and he did so through death. Adam's sin and our sin demanded death, but Jesus broke the curse. How? By becoming a curse. By becoming in his flesh the embodiment of sinful, condemned humanity and dying in our place. This church is manifold grace. This means that you and I deserve to die. And instead, God put on flesh. And he died for us to give us eternal life. He who made the heavens stooped down and was made even lower than the angels, became a mortal man in order to ransom mortal men from the grave. I hope you see in the language of this verse, and we're almost done. And in Revelation 5, and in Revelation 5 from a few moments ago, really, um, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. He was slain by his blood. He ransomed people for God from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. Can I, can I just, I just want to put a little bow on this, sum it up a little bit for you and make it a little personal. God intended for you to be a king or queen with authority over the earth. Adam goofed hard. And we now have a sin nature, which is the opposite of God. And, and that leads to eternal death. But Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, the perfect Adam, Adam, 
put on a skin suit. And he came and did what only he could do. He died and he rose and he defeated the eternal death, once again bringing dominion. And now to each of you sitting in these seats and listening online. You are important to God. And you are welcome to take part in his victory. But you have to come under his loving authority. You have to turn from your sin nature and allow his grace and his mercy to sustain you. This is the gospel. This is the epic story being weaved throughout all of scripture and in our own lives. This is why it's so ingrained in us. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We're so thankful for you. We, 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 we think about all that you've done. We think about how you've worked and how you've moved and how you've revealed yourself to us and how you've written this story on our hearts, how you've imprinted this into our souls. how people who've never even heard your word can come to know you and love you because you're all around. So thank you for this story. Thank you for this journey. Thank you for what you've done and how you've redeemed humanity. And so right now, I just want to pray, if there is anyone in this room, God, that doesn't know you, you know them. You know them intimately. You know them specifically. You know them individually. You know their deepest thoughts and their darkest desires. You know their good and their bad. You know every memory they've forgotten. But if there's someone in here who doesn't know you, I pray that right now you would speak into their very souls. That you would call them home. If you're here and you're listening and this is something that you feel like the Lord is, is calling to you today, that he's speaking to you right now in this moment. You can't understand it. You can't describe it, but you just have this burden. You have this heaviness. You have this feeling that you need to do something. Then let me encourage you. We have a care room right outside these doors. And just when we when we wrap up, when we finish here, nobody's going to look at you, nobody's going to think of anything, but, but when we wrap up and finish here, I just encourage you to step out into that care room. Just spend a moment or two talking to the people there. They would love to pray with you and pray over you and pray for you. Let me continue to pray as we close out. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal your story to us little by little, moment by moment, section by section. Really the fifth moment, the fifth part of this story in this redemption journey, this epic tale of redemption is if and when we accept what you've done. We confess with our mouth and we believe with our hearts. So God, I pray this over everyone in the room, that we would recognize and remember how you started this where you're going to finish this. The victory is yours. We know the end of the story, just like I gave all the spoilers to the Odyssey. We know how the story ends. And it's with you, victorious, new heaven, new earth. 
and us ruling by your side as your followers. So God, we just thank you so much for how you've spoken to us and how you've moved. And if there's anyone that needs to make a decision, God, that you would continue to move them to do so in these next moments as we close out. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.